When you sit down to eat your next meal, think about how your food got in front of you. Did you grow it yourself or did you buy it from someone? If the latter, was it from a restaurant or a store? Do you ever wonder how it gets from the farm to your plate? Whether you're a vegan or a diehard carnivore, your food comes from a farm somewhere. It needs to be grown, harvested, processed, and transported to a place where it is then prepared and offered for sale. This process can be anywhere from days to months and can come from down the road or across the oceans and continents far away. One thing is for certain, it probably involves one or more integrated circuits along the way. How could microchip technology help bring food from the farm to your table? Let's go beyond the microchip and hear a story of empowering innovation to enhance the human experience. Our guests today are Ross Satchel and Toby Sinkinson. Ross and Toby are applications engineers at Microchip Technology working out of the 8-bit microcontroller business unit. They join us today from our global headquarters in Chandler, Arizona. Welcome, Ross. Welcome, Toby. Thanks for joining us here on Beyond the Microchip. In the intro, we briefly talked about the food we eat and how microchip technology can make it easier to get from farm to table. Tell us about it. So we've seen over about the last 20 years uh, a real rise in the availability of uh, microcontroller sensors. And during that time, we've also seen the cost of them plummet. And so this enables uh, small developers all the way through to large companies to develop embedded systems using low-cost sensors. Uh, and additionally, we've seen the rise of a lot of different radio technologies, everything from Wi-Fi all the way through to LoRa, which is a... a Long range, low power. And uh, LoRa in, in particular is a really uh, power sipping technology and it uses very little current, uh, has a very long range, but at, at the cost of that, it has a very low throughput. Uh, but that makes it perfect for these agricultural uh, applications. Yeah. Um, in our, in the Agri IoT project that we developed, we were, um, actually we installed it right outside here in Microchip and uh, put it in the farm. We were at uh, 500 uh, meters, but Laura um, in the city can go all the way uh, out to two kilometers to eight kilometers um, and still have good reception, especially when you're thinking about farms where you have uh, not a lot of um, obstacles in the signal. So it makes it uh, much more suitable there. Right. So in the old days, you had a farmer, he probably had some kind of animal dragging a plow. And then if he ever needed to go out and look at the crops, he physically walked out to the field, bent down and looked at the crops. And we don't need to do that anymore, right? We have sensors, we have long range power, we have a number of different applications to it. So what is what has become integrated circuitry that kind of replaces that analog process that the farmers of yesterday did? So it makes the whole process much faster and more able to get a clearer picture of what, what's happening on the entire farm at any point in time. Because by deploying a lot of sensors across the farm, you can get a really granular look at what's happening without the farmer having to go out and, and look at lumps of earth and look at individual plants. They still need to get that ground truth uh, by going out and comparing that to the data that they're seeing, but it means that they don't have to go out anywhere near as often. And so more nodes just means a clearer picture of what's happening on the entire farm. 
Yeah. So, and so farmers in the past, right, would reach down with their hands. It's, it's sort of a crude way to actually touch the soil. They could feel the texture, what critters were in it, um, which, and that's, and that crudeness is actually has been incredible. And we, we've relied on that for a long time, but now with having these sensors that are more accurate, more precision, um, have more precision and you can place them in, in over these distances, it makes the whole uh, application of, of visiting all these different places much more uh, efficient. So your modern farmer's sitting in his house with a laptop rather than walking around and letting his gut tell him how the crop's doing? Well, it's a bit of both. Because you still need to have that physical knowledge of what's actually happening and, and, and understand the, the, uh, what a particular element in the earth or of texture of the earth indicates, but also uh, being able to understand the, the data analytic side of it makes them way more efficient, uh, helps them improve their yields across the entire farm with less work on their behalf. So the data analytics part, that's what gets us into the realm of smart agriculture. That's correct. Right. So what, what kind of analysis and insights do the farmers typically pull from the data? Well, there's, there's, uh, well, there's a couple of pieces there that need to be uh, teased out. I think, um, you know, in our design, we were, you know, we were measuring uh, soil temperature and soil moisture. Um, but then you, above the ground, you have humidity, you know, barometric pressure to calculate weather patterns. Um, there's a whole bunch of other things that you could be measuring there. Um, and I think, uh, you know, what farmers need often is not, um, they need to be able to synthesize that data in a very meaningful way that makes it very easy. Most farmers um, we'll get into this later, I think about, you know, the modern farmers is younger, so they're maybe more familiar with or more accepting of technology in, the, in their space. Um, but traditionally, and, and, and many of them, they who have relied on these old, um, old methods, uh, are not interested in being overwhelmed with data. So that machine learning piece there is how do we take this data and make meaningful long range decisions about the farm? So sensors, power sipping radio, that helps the farmer draw it out of the ground efficiently and that helps the production and the yield. But then you got to actually get it somewhere. Then what happens? So a big part of moving uh, the produce that is grown often in rural areas to the cities where it's consumed usually means uh, via truck. And so there's a lot of pollution problems associated with that, with that uh, because there's the, the carbon emissions of the fuel that's being burned. Uh, there's also the, uh, the microplastics that are, are coming off the uh, tires on the trucks that ends up, first of all, ends up on the ground. It slowly works its way uh, into our um, water table and our water system, and then eventually it finds its way into our plants, uh, which is far from ideal. So we kind of want to see if we can get the, the place where the food is grown much closer to the place where it's consumed. And so then we're starting to look at uh, things like uh, locally produced uh, food within the community that it is actually consumed in. Yeah. So like, and, and our project too, when we were, we were working for, towards helping these small farmers have access to the kind of technology that could help them grow locally. Um, because you have these, you know, the big agricultural farms have, you know, lots larger yields. They have bigger R and D budgets, um, to be able to put this technology in the hands of them means they can grow it closer, lo more locally. 
And that eliminates the need for planes, trains, automobiles, and transport technologies. It doesn't eliminate it, but hopefully will greatly reduce it. Because I don't think we can ever eliminate uh, large-scale farming, especially in very large cities, uh, from the, the people where it's consumed. Because you simply won't be able to grow enough food within a city. So, but if we can reduce that, that effect that the, the, all the, the trucking, et cetera, is having, then that, that's a good thing. But as, um, as Toby was saying on the, the community gardening, gardening side of things, uh, where, where you're getting the locals involved in farming their food, and there's a lot of positive effects there. So you have uh, people getting regular exercise and getting a healthy lifestyle. Uh, there's a sense of community where you can get to meet your neighbours and garden with them and talk about what's going on in their lives and actually get to know your neighbours because how many of us in a city actually know our neighbours? Uh, there's also opportunities for learning, whether it's for children or adults or uh, any ages basically, where the kids can learn about one, where their food comes from, Two, they can learn about some of the uh, embedded systems perhaps that are being used to help monitor everything and, uh, and just also learn from some of the older people in their community. And, it, and at the end of the day, it's all about making fresh food accessible to people in your local community. Yeah, and that being closer means you a lot of foods, fruit and vegetables in particular, um, the sooner you get it from the vine to the, the plate, as the more enriching it is, the more delicious it is. Yeah, so there's the time aspect, there's the social aspect. Uh, with regards to the technologies we've been talking about so far, does the size of the organization matter? I mean, is, is there any different use case scenario for a mega farm as there would be for one of these small community gardens? That's a good question. Uh, the mega farms are often using a lot of embedded systems that are built into their combine harvesters and their planter machines and things like that, whereas a much smaller scale farm is often using uh, people to do that and then just monitoring the actual conditions around the plants and the, the crops as they grow. Is there a difference in data capture and analysis between the two scales? You would expect that on a very large scale farm that they would likely have a much closer idea of, of what's going on. But if their, their only source of data is coming from these large tractors, then they still get just a snapshot as it goes past the, the plants or it's planting them or it's harvesting and things like that. So if you're able to have these sensor nodes in, in a farm, then it really gives you uh, not just that single snapshot, but many snapshots over time. And so you get a really clearer picture of what's going on in the farm. I think with the larger farms too, you're, you're often dealing with a monocrop, monoculture crop. And so smaller farms are going to have a more diversified. So they have different kinds of needs in different locations, um, whether that's shaded or partially shaded or more water, less water. And then we talked about the idea of a farmer with his laptop. Um, <clears throat> that probably lends itself to opportunities for automation, right? So we're... What's a brief kind of overview to touch? Because we're going to talk about this probably the next time we see you guys in a different episode. But what can you touch on briefly about the use of automation because of these technologies? Absolutely. So, so there's a few different uh, opportunities for automation. So part of it is the, the small-scale community garden gardening that we were just talking about before. Mm -hmm. There's also, uh, for example, in New York City, uh, I used to live in Brooklyn, and uh, right at the end of my street on Eagle Street is a place called Brooklyn Grange where they were setting up rooftop gardens. And so there's a lot of uh, opportunities there because you have dual use so you can produce food and you can also reduce the cooling requirements of a building. Uh, and that also offsets some of the problems with uh, white roof, uh, which is just painting the roof white so you reflect the, the sunlight. And um, 
it's, it's there's some evidence that's, that, that's suggesting that actually reduces the vertical transport of the moisture and it reduces your cloud formation and thus rain. So that can cause some problems. But adding automation is there's a tendency in agriculture to overwater things uh, because underwatering means that you could potentially lose the entire crop. So in that case, it's better to overwater. But the problem is it uh, obviously increases your water consumption, uh, but it also dilutes the flavor of um, some of these, uh, for example, watermelon. If you overwater that, it really dilutes that flavor. You don't get that real nice sweetness. And having that excess water um, that or watering, that means that uh, uh, you have any excess is running off into local waterways, carrying your fertilizer with it. And that, that causes its own set of problems uh, known as uh, eutrophication, which is the excess water, uh, excess nutrients, sorry, in these waterways. And then this causes increased plant growth growth, and also kills animals like fish uh, due to the lack of uh, oxygen in the water since the plants are all taking up that oxygen. And then th this is why we've been seeing increased uh, frequency of algal blooms. And um, so by automating things, we're, uh, we should see that we can get the right amount of water to each section of the farm so that we can that way we can optimize that and, and the main idea is one you reduce your water consumption two you get the water to where you need it and three you're minimizing the fertilizer runoff and affecting all the systems around you you know to that i'd add too and here in arizona one technique that farmers are using um is, is flood irrigation so uh they are each given this certain amount of time period where they can access the water um from the waterway system and so they open the the one valve on the end and they have to wait until that water reaches the end of the row which can take maybe an, a couple of hours till it's fully saturated and go out and turn that off and then they open the next one so this and this often happens at night too so this is where i think they're really excited about having this automated where we have some sort of sensor at the end of the row that we know exactly and like buried a certain depth underground so we knew exactly when that water has reached that point and they can automate this process we're looking for that goldilocks zone right not too Absolutely. hot not too cold yeah yeah you can see that when somebody's watering their lawn when they've let the water go too long and then uh -huh. the water just goes down into the into the gutter and that doesn't help anybody save water does it yeah, especially here. I mean, all the restrictions on the Colorado River Basin here, people are, are becoming not only more mindful and especially the farmers that we've talked to who are already on that. I mean, that's their livelihood, but also there's a, a, a bigger picture here uh, with taking care of the water that we do have. So that kind of gets into sustainability in modern farming, water conservation chiefly among them. Are there any other principal resources that we can think of with this technology that would help us save? You mentioned fertilizer. So you can reduce, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can reduce the amount of fertilizer that you're using and also... The thing that popped into my mind, uh, maybe a little tangent, but is uh, you know, all the technologies that we've been talking about so far for that we're trying to bring to farmers um, require that we're not using very much power at all. Uh, they have to be able to do their task without, because with very little battery or possibly solar harvesting. Um, so, and, and maybe that's, and that maybe that's another area that I think the technologies can help out with, um, just solar and other energy forms, uh, relate like how farms can run off of these, uh, alternative power sources. So we're seeing lithium batteries in everything currently. And so one of the big problems is, is once the lithium battery, uh, whether it's a primary non-rechargeable battery or a, a secondary rechargeable battery, uh, at the end of its lifespan, ideally we need to be able to reclaim that lithium so that it can get reused. 
Uh, but as Toby was saying, if we can go to some form of renewable, for example, solar, uh, in, the, in the form of, say, small solar cells and supercapacitors to to uh, to power these devices, and this means we're we're looking at twenty year lifespans out of these embedded systems that are uh, working out in the farm. They can pretty much just be left alone. The only time you'd really need to uh, pull them up is harvest time, so that you don't accidentally run them over. So let's think about smart agriculture as a as a category. What are some useful ideas about smart agriculture? So we we know that we want to save water. We know that we want to save fertilizer. What other areas are there to be aware of? In terms of the old ways versus the new ways, we touched on it briefly, at least with the you know the farm to table concept too, like uh, and the supply chain, how that's working. Smart agriculture um, helps us reduce that time, reduce the resources involved in transporting that. We've seen uh, with the Internet of Things how it's already starting to change our lives a lot. And so it's ranging from everything from consumer health and fitness, if you're wearing uh, some sort of fitness tracker. Uh, through to transportation such as Uber or accurate public transport. So I remember waiting at a bus stop 20 years ago that, for a bus that never came. Uh, and and then, then we go into things like uh, smart supply chains where uh, like where is my shipping container or tracking the temperature of a carton of milk as it travels all the way from the creamery to your local store so you know whether it's stayed within the temperature range uh, during that trip and if it's gone outside of that temperature range, where has that happened? So then that can be addressed. And so those problems can be solved. Uh, and then we've seen like smart homes. Uh, so for an example is uh, one of the earlier episodes with Dr. Mark Smith and his espresso machine uh, machine learning algorithm that predicted when it should turn itself on based on previous data. And you can control your lights. So you have, um, for example, a thermostat, a thermostat based on occupancy. Uh, so you can use a predictive model or you can control it externally through your smartphone. We have fire detection systems that are, uh, it's a smartphone. Then we have fire detection systems where you can have a smartphone alert if little Johnny or little Debbie is starting fires in their bedroom. Uh, and then also you can alert uh, first responders and, and advise them where to position their personnel and their trucks so they can more uh, safely uh, act more safely control the fire, put it out, and also get their personnel in and out safely while getting uh, the the people who are trapped in the fire out. Then we have also smart cities. So we, we're seeing here in Phoenix, Arizona, the smart traffic lights that are being used to reduce pollution by improving the traffic flow based on in intersection camera, um, camera data. And then if we can combine that with pollution sensing uh, Internet of Things or IoT nodes at intersections, that can give you real feedback into the machine learning models. That way you can optimize the traffic flow to minimize these air pollutants. I would add to that too, that the, um, the changing weather patterns, we're seeing some pretty extreme weather and, and droughts and that being able to respond to that, those changes in farming in maybe a way that they're not normally doing is going to be critical in order to keep up the, the yield that they need and, and take care of the crops that they have. Smart agriculture gives us a way to, to respond. And so the Congressional Budget Office has predicted that the U.S. population is going to increase by about 37 million people over the next 30 years. Now, this doesn't sound like much considering the United States has a population of around 330 million. Uh, but when we take into account uh, that population increase with the water scarcity increasing, uh, that leads to increased crop failures due to the spring and fall temperature shifts. Uh, farmers' uh, profit margins are getting thinner and thinner, making it more difficult for them to be uh, for them to remain viable. 
And also the number of farms has been steadily dropping since 2007, uh, basically since the, the GFC or global financial crisis. So all of that together, it means that the farms need to be more efficient. They need to maximize their yield while using less water, minimizing their runoff so they can protect the waterways. Uh, and also this means that they need a huge amount of data so that their systems can be optimized. And that means they need to be cost effective. So these smaller farms uh, can can afford to implement this data-driven farming so they can remain viable. Lucky for them too that we're seeing a lot of this technology is more accessible to consumer level. And going back to your point, Dana, when you mentioned that farm, Modern Farm has the laptop, really the laptop is in their pocket. I mean, they're walking around with the, the phone. Um, we've built these dashboards so that you can literally jump to a part of your your crop and say this is what the temperature is in the soil this is what the humidity is there and this is what it's been since eight o'clock this morning you know so and and having those uh environmental sensors not just the soil based ones like the soil moisture and soil temperature but the air based ones where you have the temperature humidity atmospheric pressure this enables you to identify microclimates on your farm that previously you would have had no idea that they existed and this means that farmers may end up actually reorganizing their farm to take advantage of this. Is this like an area where there's more trees versus less or mm -hmm. by a riverbed? Or, and, well, and this is all done on the phone? Well, this is all done from the device that you can then uh, track the data through any kind of computer, whether that's your phone or your laptop. And the, obviously the pricing and the components is going down. Mm -hmm. So everything seems to be getting smaller, more efficient and easier to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've seen it in the... Luckily. Right? Yeah, I mean, it couldn't come at a better time, right? Like, yeah. When I first encountered embedded systems in the mid-1990s, I remember saying, who would do this? Because it was so difficult to write because you had to do everything in hexadecimal. Uh, so that's right. So you start with your uh, base address and then you have to calculate your offset. You calculate what you need to write to it. And then when you're trying to read and debug, everything's in hexadecimal. <laughs> it's really easy to make a simple error and it's a nightmare to debug. And I remember saying, who would do this? Like, I can do this in hardware much faster. And now these days with, with things like uh, Arduino, uh, taking off in the, the early 2000s. And now we have uh, things like our uh, microchip code configurator, which enables you to set up your peripherals quite easily and just start working with them. But the change in just that amount of time has been truly impressive. So you mentioned uh, a few interesting things there. Suppose one of our listeners has a use case for this technology. Where would they go? How would they adopt it? Where could we send them? So the, uh, the place that they could start is going to hackster.io and they can use the search term agricultural IoT and look for the article by Toby Sinkinson, who's with me right here. And uh, they, the version there is uh, based on development boards where you can buy all these uh, bits and pieces online, cobble it all together and get a prototype up and running. And so from there, once you're uh, happy with the way your prototype is going, then you, if you want to, you can lay out your own printed circuit board. You can adapt it uh, for any other things that you might want to uh, measure and, uh, and just run with it from there. We'll make sure we include a link to that in the show notes. So we kind of have a state of where we are now. The cost is coming down, less complexity in the systems, a lot more ease of use. Farmer can walk around with a tablet uh, and they've got a dashboard with some some basic feedback of what the soil's doing, what the air's doing. We've got microclimates. Where's the future going? What are, what are we looking at? I don't know, 5, 10, 
20 years down the road. What are we looking at next year? What, any ideas of where the direction is that we can go? What, what are we looking forward to? I know what I'd like to see. Let's I'd like to there. see distributed farming where, so we were talking about that earlier is, is farming the food closer to where it's going to be consumed. And a way that that can potentially be done in cities is doing hydroponic rooftop farming. So that enables you to do vertical farms so you can pack in a lot more produce being grown into the same area that you would be using with soil. And there used, uh, it used to be that all the hydroponic fertilizers were chemical-based fertilizers, and so they can be harmful for the environment uh, once you've finished using them. But there's been a big rise in the last 20 years or so, I guess, of using more organically-based uh, fertilizers. And this is like creating worm castings to you, and you add some bat guano and some liquid kelp fertilizer and some blackstrap molasses and bubble it in a bucket, basically, for one one day to a week and uh, and you end up with this fermented tea and then you could just measure the concentration of that dilute it to whatever strength you need and use that in your hydroponic system you know to that i would add um when we were developing our board uh we were looking at um some articles about how to capture uh, soil moisture um with a capacitive moisture sensor and um, there's these low cost uh, sensors that are out there the two dollars but you can buy the uh the high-end versions for, you know, a thousand or more. Um, but one of the things, the articles that we found, they actually describe soil as the final frontier. And I, it's very much like this. So when, um, when, when farmers want to get a gauge of what's going on in the soil, they have, you know, you've always had the option of taking that sample, hauling it off to a lab and getting really good data on it. Um, but that can take two weeks. You've disturbed the soil by that time. It's, it's really, so being able to like figure out, you know, the condition of the soil that the word is in situ, like right there in that place is still like this uh, tough problem. Um, and there's, I think, but you know, given these, uh, you know, social, um, uh, pressures and like our climate pressures. I think there are a lot more minds are coming at this. We've seen some pretty cool different ways of trying to gather that information where you don't disturb the soil, where you can continue to farm, where you have process, you know, your process is driving over that soil. So you can't have something that's going to get damaged. You can't have something that's going to like degrade and harm the soil. Um, so there's, there's a lot of like really tough problems still there. So, and I, I think that's an exciting place to be. It's an exciting place to see innovation happen. Uh, any final thoughts on this subject? We've got, we covered a lot of ground today, but any, any parting thoughts? So I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to see, uh, more smaller farmers remain viable without, uh, being dominated by the, the extremely large farms. So that way you can get more of a, a, a relationship with your local farmer uh, to keep them viable. We can also uh, improve our uh, water consumption while improving the, the quality and quantity of the, the crop yields. And all, all this time, hopefully, particularly with the smaller scale farmers, is enabling them to get reasonable margins on their produce so they can remain viable and remain sustainable for their future as well and for their their children etc so at the end of every day like we're, we're recommended that we eat five servings of fruit and vegetable a day to to lower our chance of developing chronic diseases and um, so and there's some evidence that may extend your longevity but we do know it reduces the risk of uh, death from heart and respiratory diseases so we need to eat 
plenty of fruits and vegetables so and to probably try to minimize our processed food so if we can do that while helping those farmers remain viable i think maybe there's hope for us yet Ross Satchel and Toby Sinkinson are application engineers at Microchip Technology working out of the 8-bit microcontroller business unit. They join us today from our global headquarters in Chandler, Arizona. Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thank you for venturing beyond the microchip with us. Join us next time as we continue to explore empowering innovation to enhance the human experience. 